Well, good morning. Um, this morning we turn again to the book of Genesis in our uh, ongoing uh, series. We've looked at the opening of four chapters over the course of the past uh, 10 weeks or so. And so just to catch you up, especially if you're relatively uh, new to our study, this is where we are uh, in the story. Uh, Adam and Eve, our first parents, are uh, no longer in Eden, uh, the place where God had set them, the place where they enjoyed unfettered friendship and fellowship with Him, uh, where they enjoyed the fullness of creation as it was originally designed and ordered. But, but now they have been banished from the garden. They've been banished from Eden because of their rebellion and disobedience. And in life outside of the garden, as they now toil and labor, they also start to have children. The first two sons being Cain and Abel. And sadly, though, as we discovered last week, Cain has the uh, disgraceful distinction of being the first murderer in the history of humanity after killing his brother, uh, overcome as he was by jealousy and wickedness. And in what follows, what we have really is a record of two lines of descendants that come from Adam. So Genesis 4, chapter 4, describes, uh, it, 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 it provides really a, a look at Cain and his descendants, his ungodly line, if you will. And then in chapter 5, in contrast to Cain's line, we have Seth's line. And so we start with Adam and we work through uh, Seth all the way down to, to Noah, who's going to be a big player uh, in the weeks to come. And, and we're told that Seth's family line, uh, they were men and women who began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we have this contrast between these two lines of descendants. Now this morning, uh, as we continue on in, in Genesis, we're essentially going to be reflecting on uh, the, uh, the unifying theme that we discover in a genealogy that's been left to us, and essentially giving consideration this morning to the problem of death, which are probably uh, two of the things on top of every person's list of things they'd rather not spend time uh, considering, a genealogy and death. What a wonderful topic for the, uh, the, the beginning of spring. But I said we would, didn't I? If you, you may recall, two weeks ago we looked at what, um, what I think is the most common object, objection people level um, when they're struggling to come to terms with the Christian message. In fact, if you're, if you're not a believer here today and you're wrestling with the Christian faith, uh, some of the problems that you have may be because you struggle with the fact that a loving God allows suffering. And so what we did two weeks ago is we broke that question in half and said, actually, there are people who struggle with suffering because of evil, people doing terrible things to each other, you know, genocide and pedophilia and rape and murder and, and drunk driving and, and, and things like that. And then we've got on the other side, we've got suffering that's as a result of there being death in the world. Tsunamis and earthquakes and cancer and children who get meningitis and famine and COVID and miscarriages and floods, things like that. So the challenge often comes in the form of, well, I just can't believe in your God because a loving God wouldn't allow suffering. 
And I said last time that I think a good question to ask is, well, what type of suffering do you mean? Because if the answer people give is in terms of human evil, you know, drunk driving or genocide or whatever, just to, to have the whole spectrum, why does God allow that? Then, then we talked last time about how we might follow that up with a few other questions to help us and others think through that. And if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go online and look for that message on the problem of suffering and evil, and that will hopefully help you. But people might not be thinking about evil. They might be thinking about what we, what we might call natural disasters and diseases, uh, um, they mean innocent people dying in earthquakes in impoverished nations and children lying in hospital beds dying with cancer and, and things like that. And in the face of, of such, we're, we're thinking, goodness, I can't talk about evil in this sense and say, oh, well, this is because of human decisions. What do I, I say? What am I supposed to make of it all? Now, as it happens, a few natural disasters and diseases are caused uh, by human decisions, actually. So, so in some ways, it's true that it can be the result of human decisions, right? Decisions that we make, smoking and pollution and sex with multiple partners and drug use and, 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 and poor eating choices can all lead to natural disasters and diseases. And, and yes, where we decide to live and how we build buildings can influence the amount of people who die in natural disasters. I mean, you could, I mean, you could put the whole population in France and give everyone 800 square feet of land, and everyone would never die in floods and never die in earthquakes. You might die overdosing on cheese, but you'd be fine with all the others. And so... Sometimes there are choices we make that do enhance the likelihood, the, the, the likelihood people will die by way of natural disasters and diseases. But, but, the fact remains that many people we know have died of something that had nothing to do with the choice they made and had nothing to do with the choice another human being made either. They simply died as a result of living in a world where there is decay and destruction and death. And that fundamentally is the real problem. The problem people ultimately have is with death being in the world. That is, death is the enemy. It's a very common thing that people struggle with, especially, I suppose, when it comes to people dying long deaths in which they experience great suffering and pain, or people dying when they're very young. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that this morning in order to help us think through this issue ourselves, but, but doing so in a way where hopefully also will, it'll help equip us so that we're able to helpfully engage with others and serve them as well. So if you haven't already, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. Now just before we get into it, let me give a word of preface. I'm fully aware that the subject of death is far from an abstract theological concept and is very personal for many of us. Many of us will have suffered the loss of someone that we love at some point. There may even be people uh, here today grieving. So this isn't something hypothetical that you do in philosophy. This is real life. There are people uh, in here for whom 
terminal illness and mental illness or bereavement or crib death or miscarriage have been part of your life. And so I want to say this up front. This message isn't designed in any way to take the pain away. It doesn't at all. It's a signpost in the fog saying we don't always understand. This message won't answer questions that will make everything seem okay. It can't. What I'm hoping to do is, 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 is to, to look at how the Bible changes our perspective on death. But if you're in the midst of grief, perspective change isn't the main thing that you need. What you need is for your family and your friends to, to rally around you and support you and love you and pray with you and cry with you. What you need is to cling to the God who loves you, a God who has promised to be with you in the midst of suffering. That's what you really need. And that's what others need as well. And so please, can I encourage you, don't be glib if if unbelievers come at you and say, why does God allow, I don't believe in your God because a loving God wouldn't allow suffering. Please don't feel like the, the answer to that is to defend the, the, the Christian worldview instantly and say, well, it's because of this, 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 and this. Often the answer is just to listen to and maybe cry with a hurting person. Well, I can't make pain go away. None of us can. So what we do is we, when we're struggling is we search the scriptures and we say, why God, why? And we sing songs with people who suffered before us and we listen to the testimonies of others who have gone, bef- gone uh, through sorrow before us and who are able to say, Jesus got me through it. And we spend time in community and we learn from others who've overcome. And there's no neat and pithy answers that makes it go away. So please hear all that I'm saying framed with that. I do want to help us think through this biblically, but please don't ever reduce it to pat answers, no matter how well-intentioned. Don't say, it's all going to be okay. A friend once told me, he said, yeah, we went to a priest with a a question about suffering, and he said, ah, the Lord moves in mysterious ways. Well, he does, but that's not helpful. You know, we need to be able to help people embrace pain and say, this is, I am so sorry Let me help you through this. Let's not be silly, but let's learn to grapple with the tough questions that death raises. So let's begin at Genesis chapter 5. And I want you to listen for the catchphrase in this chapter because it comes up again and again. um, And I'm sure you'll pick it up uh, and, and see what the writer is trying to tell us about the consequences of the fall that we read about a few weeks ago. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's a good inning, I think you'll agree. And he died. Then Seth had, when Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years. Another good inning. And he died. Then Enosh, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enos lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. 
When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years. Veritable spring chicken, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. You think, has he escaped death? Well, not really. He, was, he still wasn't allowed to, to live any longer, but he was taken another way for walking with God. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, the oldest man ever, and he died. Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. The punchline of this chapter is this. Everyone dies. That's the summary of Genesis 5. Everyone dies. People often talk about the fall in death rate. Really? 100% last year, 100% this year. Not much of a fall there. Or medical breakthrough, saying this medical breakthrough will save many lives. I know what people mean. I love medical breakthroughs. But medical breakthroughs don't really save lives. They postpone deaths, if we're honest. Or, or firemen, oh, they saved lives. Well, not really, actually. They postponed deaths because those lives are going to end at some stage, right? You get the point that Moses is making in these verses. Everyone dies. Now, this isn't shocking to us in the abstract. Of course, we know this. Life teaches us this. Life teaches us that everyone dies, but in another sense, when death moves from the abstract to the cold, hard reality, we are profoundly and surprisingly shocked. It, it appears that despite living with a constant awareness that we will die, humanity hasn't quite grown used to the fact. We are constantly shocked by it and constantly grieved by it. After all this time, death still feels out of place to us. And somehow we live as if we're, we've become convinced that it's not going to happen to us. So even though we know everyone dies, and it ought to be the most normal thing in the world, we live as if it shouldn't be part of creation. Have you ever stopped to think why that is? You see, an atheistic, materialistic worldview that just explains life as a product of evolution has no real answer for why we feel the way we do about death. If nature is all, has always been red in tooth and claw, then why 
Why don't we feel at home in a world where we die and disintegrate? If death is just a natural part of life, as the Lion King would have us believe, why do we feel this way about it? Why do you think we find death so difficult and painful? See, C.S. Lewis said that we shouldn't really feel awkward and strange about dying because it's so normal. He actually says, I I could build a natural theology on people making jokes about feeling bad about death and going to the toilet because they are the most natural things there are, and yet we live our lives as as if they shouldn't be there. We live as if they're really funny or really upsetting, and actually they're so every day. Why, Why is anyone bothered? Yet we are. We really are bothered. Grief, pain, uh, funerals, euphemisms. He passed away. Well, we say that because we don't want to say he died. In other words, Lewis is saying something in us feels like this is wrong. And that's an interesting observation. And he actually said this, which is, which is uh, some of you will have heard this. It's a wonderfully profound quote. He said, it is as if the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as as a fish were repeatedly surprised by the wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish was one day destined to become a land animal. He's saying death to us is as normal as, as, wetness, uh, as wetness of water is to fish. It's so every day. Everybody knows that everyone's going to die, and yet we still feel like we shouldn't. And Lewis is saying something in that points to the fact that we know that in our hearts we're not supposed to. I think he's right. I think it's profound. He, he, he's saying the feeling that of, of death shouldn't be, the, the, the feeling that death shouldn't be there is strong evidence that once upon a time it wasn't and in the future it won't be. So we feel towards it like it's, it's a great a gate crasher that, that's crashed our party. And that's, how, and that's how we feel about human dyings. None of us struggle with the idea of autumn leaves, do we? In fact, when the fall rolls around, there'll be autumn leaves that have fallen from trees everywhere. There's death all around us. We think it's, we think it's fine. We think, we, we think it's beautiful. None of us struggle with steak. A few of us might, but, you know, most of us don't struggle with steak because, you know, God made cows out of steak, and, and that's a good idea. And so, so we like the idea. It's death, I know, but it's wonderful. And actually, none of us struggle with animals violently killing a, a, a other animals because when I told... Uh, uh, when I told the uh, David Attenborough documentary story a couple of weeks ago, none of you were horrified and disgusted by it. So in other words, we don't struggle with the death of animals or vegetables, but when it's people, we really do. Human death is very painful to us. It feels like an intruder. It feels like it shouldn't be here. And that's what Christians be- believe about death. That's the Christian view of death. Death is the ultimate unwelcome guest, the gatecrasher into God's world, and it's not supposed to be here, and we're supposed to feel like that. That's why it's right for people to cry and grieve when people die. 
We're not trying to say, oh, put a good face on it. We're saying, no, 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 we're supposed to embrace this feeling of overwhelming pain because death has never meant, meant to be, have been here. It's meant to hurt. It's horrible. So Lewis is saying that the fact that, that the fact is that we are continually, the fact that we're continually shocked and grieved by death, the reason is because there's something within us knows that, that, that we were meant to last. Knows that, that, that knows that we were meant to, to live forever. That knows that we weren't meant to die. We're meant to grow more and more beautiful as time went on, not more and more shriveled. Stronger and stronger, not weaker and weaker. Brighter and brighter, not fading away. So our grief and, and tears at the death of our loved ones, our fears about our own death, betray our belief that far from being natural, death is an intruder. And quite unsurprisingly, this is exactly what the Bible says. Now, there is some debate over whether there was absolutely no death in the world that God created um, and said was very good in Genesis 1, or, or if there was just no human death. There are men and women who love Jesus and love their Bibles who believe that there was no death in the beginning, that all animals were herbivores and, and, and nothing got old and died. And, and there are also men and women who love Jesus and love their Bibles who believe that the Genesis account allows for there to be death in creation, that the, that the food chain was very similar to the way it is now. Big animals ate smaller animals that ate even smaller animals, that things got old and die, uh, that there were seasons and so on. Uh, I will say, I do wonder if there might have been at least some death within creation for God's threat of death um, as a punishment to, to, to be meaningful to Adam and Eve. Whatever you believe, whether you believe that, 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 that there was death in the rest of creation or absolutely no death, both positions agree that the Bible teaches God never intended for humans to die. He never intended for Adam and Eve to get old and to get sick. Death was not part of God's original design. That is why death is ex excruciatingly painful whenever and however it happens. If you ask someone who's just lost a toddler, they'll say this is the most painful it could ever be. If you ask someone who's just lost their husband in, in their 40s, they'll say this is as painful as it can be. And they're both right because the fact of death is excruciatingly painful. And if you go to a funeral and you see an 80-year-old man crying because his wife of many years has died, what you are seeing is that death is always painful. And in his tears, he's saying, I'm still, after all of these years, struggling to come to terms with the fact that death is in this world. That's what we're saying when we cry when people die. We're, we're saying this is not the way it was supposed to be. And so if it was not part of the design, what happened? Well, as we well know, um, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, you can eat from, from every tree apart from one. If you go back to Genesis 2.17, this is what God says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, let's just stop here to define our terms. 
What exactly does the Bible mean when it says we will die? What does it mean when it talks about death? Well, throughout the Bible, death is explained not as extinction or as non-existence, but as separation. First of all, the Bible speaks of physical death. As it says in James 2, we die when our immaterial spirit is separated from our physical bodies, when we are separated from the physical world. This can happen, as in the case of Adam, just by getting old, or as we all well know, and this can happen through trauma or illness at any age. But secondly, the Bible also speaks of spiritual death, and this is, this is explained as our separation from God. So, for instance, Paul in Ephesians 2 can say that we are physically alive but spiritually dead. In fact, this is the natural state um, that, that all are born into after an Adam and Eve. We, we're, that, that we're physically alive but we're spiritually dead because we are separated relationally from God. And as it says in Hebrews, it is appointed for man to physically die once and then face judgment. And the outcome of that judgment may result in what the Bible calls in Revelation 21, the second death. And that is eternal separation from God. So death in the Bible is spiritual, is spiritual or physical separation. And we discover in Genesis 3 that the reason... Death exists at all for humans is because of sin. That death is the consequence of sin and death is the punishment for sin. Paul says in Romans 5 that sin entered the world through one man and that death came through sin. And so death came to all men because all men sin. And go back for a moment to Adam and Eve at the tree. You see, the serpent lies to them by appealing to two things, their pride and their fear. First of all, he tells them that they can be like God. They can be gods, in effect. They don't need to listen to God. They don't need to, to obey him and do what he says. They can decide for themselves what is good. They can decide for themselves what to do. But he also appeals to their fear. He, he, he suggests that maybe God doesn't really love them. Maybe he's holding out on them. Maybe he, he can't be trusted. And they listen to his lies, and so they disobey, and they take the fruit, and they eat. And we see that immediately after, they suffer a spiritual death as they are banished from the garden. They are separated from the presence of God. And even though their sin demands immediate physical death as well, we see God's grace and mercy extended to them. And instead of immediate death, they, they live on for hundreds of years. But eventually they do die, as we all do, because they're now separated from God, because they're now separated from the tree of life. Their bodies grow old and older, and eventually their bodies just give out and they die. And do you see how fitting that is? For people who thought they could be like God, that they didn't need God in order to exist. You see, death leaves us under no illusion that we are the, cre the created and he is the creator. So Genesis 3 tells us that physical death, separation of body and soul, results from spiritual death, separation of humans from God. And that everlasting life is only possible when we're connected to God. People live believing, I wish we were immortal. I wish there, was, there, there wasn't any such thing as death. And the answer is, we were made that way. 
and we did something to break it, or rather Adam on our behalf did something to break it. It's like imagine, imagine a, der- you know, a derailed train between Windsor and Santa Rosa. It's flying along at 60 or 70 miles an hour, and it comes off the rails somewhere near River Road. The driver makes a stupid mistake and drives the train off the rails into a field or vineyard or whatever it is. And if you were to look at that train car at that split second, you'd see people screaming, coffee flying everywhere, newspapers waving around, people flying up into the ceiling all over the place. If you were to look at that scene and say, how could the designer design it like that? What answer would you give? You'd say, well, the designer didn't design it like that. The designer designed it to run on the rails. But because the driver took it off the rails, now it's had consequences for all these people. But the designer didn't build it that way. The reason why the people have been separated from their seats is because the train's been separated from the rails. That's what we'd say, something like that. Well, in the same way, the loving designer didn't make the world to come off the rails. He made it to be in perfect communion with him and derive our life from him. So when Adam, in the driving seat, veered off into the field, we all got sent flying all over the train car, and there's absolute chaos. But but we don't look at it and go, well, there's no loving God who designed this. We look at it and say... What has gone wrong here? Let's try and work out how to put it right. Let's, look, let's work out what the designer wants us to be doing and get it back in tune with that. And when we do, this chaos will stop. Death in the world happens because people are separated from God. Not individually, but as a, at a corporate level because the train that Adam was driving of the human race veered off the rails and everything went chaotic from that point on. And that is why death is so painful. It was never meant to be this way. And that brings us to a final question that surely needs to be asked. What then is the answer? What hope is there? Do you think it's actually possible that someone has defeated death, that Jesus has defeated death? Because you see, the Christian message is all about the defeat of death. The Christian message is that Jesus got in the front car of that train, if you like, took the wheel back and wrenches it back on the rails where, where we should have been, and everything's coming back together. Reconciliation to God has happened, and as a result, rec- re- resurrection life is possible. That's the Christian gospel. Christ, in his death, reconciles us to God when we believe in him. And as a result, we receive everlasting life. Because now there's no reason for us to die permanently because God has removed our sin. He's removed the the reason why we were separated from God in the first place. The the, the question is that all of us have to, to think about is, do you think that the resurrection of Jesus is possible? Have we, we have to make sure we've thought about that. Have we ever considered it? it what if it is true? And sadly, m- most people haven't. And it's worth us looking into because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then the train can get back on the rails. And maybe death isn't the last word. And there's now massive hope for those of us who suffer with grief and pain. 
Because Jesus' resurrection says the reign of death is temporary, not permanent. It's not just that you have a vain hope, a wishful thinking. I hope one day I'll be in a world where people don't die. Instead, it's absolute certainty that you will be raised if you're in Christ. Like thunder follows lightning, Jesus is risen. Therefore, inevitably, you will be raised as well. Because death no longer has power over him and therefore no longer has power over you. And that means that everyone who's died in the Lord, from the youngest of children through to the oldest of saints, those uh, who, from our perspective, die prematurely and tragically to those who live a long, fulfilled life, everyone will inherit everlasting joy, imperishable bodies, and a glorious new creation with Jesus. And it means that... The pain of death isn't in vain if Jesus is risen. Because you see, if there's, if there's no God and, 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 and the dead aren't raised, then there's nothing that can make the pain we feel about death go away or feel like it was worth anything. There, there, there's no making all things right. Death is pointless and pitiful. And in fact, so is life. But if the Bible, the God of the Bible is real, and if he raised Jesus of Nazareth from death on Easter Sunday, A.D. 30, then everything will be made right. The universe will be cleansed and healed from all the brokenness and damage that's come upon it, and everything will be made new. If you, you know at the end of The Lord of the Rings in the, in, in the book, Sam finds out that Gandalf is still alive, and he says, what's going on? Is, is everything sad going to come untrue? The Christian gospel is yes, every yes, because Jesus has risen. Everything sad is going to come untrue. The new creation has started. So if you struggle with the the pain of death, then, then the gospel of death defeated, an empty tomb, and a new creation is the only gospel that will satisfy you. How then will this change the way we live if we really get this? How will it change us if we know a gospel of death defeated, an empty tomb, and a new creation? Well, if we really get this, I think it will change the way we live a lot. And there are two things that I want to specifically mention as we draw to a close this morning. I know we're, we're pretty much out of time and we're start slightly overshooting this morning. I hope that's okay. But I just want to address... Uh, this issue properly, and I don't feel it's right to cut any of this out. So how then will this change the way we live? Firstly, it means that we won't fear death. And this isn't because it's just part of the natural cycle, natural circle of life. It's because death is a defeated foe. As a Christian, we know that death is no longer our punishment for sin. But God in his wisdom still allows us to experience a physical death. He doesn't take us straight to heaven like like Enoch. We have to go through this. And it's not going to be nice. I mean, it's it's going to be far from pleasant. But we know this. We know where we are going. I I like how Tim Keller describes death for the Christian. He says death is like a, a little bit like turning up to a party at a big, a great big country manor at night. 
and you pull up in your car and the pathway uh, to the door is all dark and, and overgrown and you have to kind of push your way through. It's a, it's a little bit overgrown and scary and you, you kind of have to clear the cobwebs out of the way, but you can hear laughter in the distance. And you know when you get to the door and, and you see the light all around it as you push ho- open the, the heavy door uh, as you're bathed in the, the light from the inside, as you're welcomed in, the journey is instantly forgotten. Because of Jesus' death, death is now just a door that we pass through and we're welcomed home, we're welcomed into the greatest party. So that's the first thing. If we really get this, we won't fear death. But also, and maybe more importantly, we won't make an idol out of life. Right? The, an idol, as we know, is a good thing that we elevate to an ultimate thing. It, it's a good thing that we put in the position that only Jesus should be in, in, in our lives. And we know that we've made something an idol in one of two ways. Either we are tempted to disobey God in order to get it and keep it. Or when that thing is taken from us, we are tempted to stop worshiping him and stop trusting him and stop obeying him. Now, for most of us, I, I would imagine that we're, we're not going to be in a position where, where we have to choose Jesus or life. Although our brothers and sisters around the world, uh, there, there are many of them that very often that is the very choice that they are making day after day. No, I think the choice that we are going to have is to, is to keep on worshiping when those close to us die or when we die. When, when life is, is, is taken from us. Um, even as Christians, we have to be so careful that we, that, that, that we don't treat life as a right, but that we treat it as a gift from God. And he doesn't owe us a long life. He doesn't owe our loved ones a long life either. Enoch teaches us that life is, 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 long life is not the goal. After all, of all the guys we read about, he lived the shortest, 365 years compared to 900 odd. That's a short life. And yet we are told that he was a man that walked with God and God was pleased by his faith. So long life isn't the goal. Intimate relationship with God is. And the truth is, is that some of us will live long lives. We will die in our beds surrounded by our families that love us. But some of us won't. Some of us might even die young. Some of us might battle for years with an illness that kills us. Some of us might bury even, even bury our own children. And in those moments, the enemy will come to us and will whisper the same lies that he whispered to Adam and Eve. He'll say, this is evidence that God doesn't love you. This is evidence that he cannot be trusted. And in the midst of your deepest pain and your deepest grief, when you are, are close to being overwhelmed with the mystery of suffering, the temptation will be to get angry with God and to get bitter and turn away from him. To see him as a distant God, sovereign, yes, powerful, yes, but maybe cruel and maybe against me. And the challenge for us in those times is not to go there. Because if we let him, he'll come to us in our suffering. If we let him, he'll, 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 he will prove that he really is all that we need. If we let him, he will sustain us through it. If we let him, he will even change us through it so that we come out the other side both softer and stronger. 
in your grief, remind yourself of this. You don't come to a God who's unable to sympathize. You don't come to a God who who doesn't know what it's like to suffer. You come to a God who knows what it is to die. And Christians throughout the ages have learned that when you see, there seems to be no other evidence of God's love, they cannot escape the cross. And we too must learn that when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust his heart. And as we close, instead of just drawing us in close by prayer, um, I'm going to invite you to join me in a liturgy a liturgy that is called a, a prayer of intercession against the kingdom of death. It's not in your worship guide. It's a responsive a prayer that I'm going to lead us in. And then you'll find on the screen there will be parts that come for um, us collectively to join in our voices together. O Christ who came to set your people free. Now break the... Is, the, is it going to come up on the screen? Okay, so please join me when it comes up on, on, when it comes up on the screen, okay? This is gonna, we'll work on our... T- o Christ who came to set your people free, now break the chains of death that wreck this world. Unmake the works of death which have unmade so much that you had first created good. All that is not anchored in you is unmoored, O Christ. All life that is not hidden in your life is but another shade of death. Now move us to right grief, O God, over the pain, the loss, and the suffering occasioned by all this world, that all in this world that stands in opposition to your life-giving rule and authority, by all that falls short of your glory, whether in our hearts and choices or in the hearts and choices of others, in our shared structures, in our nation and world, and in all forms of calamity and violence, whether birthed in the human heart or from the groanings of a natural world still longing for redemption. Even now, O Spirit, be at work in us, rending the very roots of our insurrections. Upend all remnants of death's profane kingdom, bursting all bonds that held us in long thrall to that cruel throne. Just as sin once reigned over us in death, now, O God, let grace reign over us through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Act swiftly, O Christ. Haste the day when your kingdom has not merely broken in to this broken world, but is at last fully realized among us, complete, present, and irresistible. Haste that day when your will is carried out as presently and perfectly on this oft-wounded earth as it is in eternity. Haste that day, O Lord. Speed the hour when bombs and bullets serve no further purpose, when the mechanisms of violence and the strategies of war are forever buried beneath a glad flourishing of people in an eternal age of peace. Haste the day when we suffer no further loss or harm, no numbing news and sudden shock of widespread death or senseless killing. Haste the day, O Lord. Haste the day when all children will always make it home safely, when there will be no fear, no ill intent, no long night spent with the unknowing, no predatory passers-by, no deadly dares or accidents. Haste the day when parents now bereft receive again the daughters and the sons who left this life too soon. 
Haste that day, O Lord. Inaugurate an age when those who would inflict hurt have instead been healed of their harms long, long before they would become so twisted as to visit their own pain on other innocents. Haste that day, O Lord. Haste that day when there is nothing left to make us anguished or afraid. When there are none who abuse power or kill for selfish gain. None who subscribe to ideologies that divide and tribalize our world in ways that claim to make a moral space in which it is acceptable to hate and to eradicate in the name of a God, a cause, a tribe, or sovereign state. Haste that day, O Lord. Haste the day when there will be no more desecration of your good gift of life, no more breaking of fellowships or communions, no ingrown clutching hearts or greedy grasping hands. Haste that day, O Lord. Haste that day when those who sow in sorrow reap their joyful harvest. Haste that day, O God, when all sad endings are finally ended, when to love another person no longer presupposes an eventual passing through pain and death and tears and separation. Haste that day, O Lord. Remake the world. Reclaim creation. Destroy death forever, O Christ. Give to your children resurrection joy in resurrected life. Even here, even now, in these shadow lands where death presumes to reign, let our lives be lived in counterclaim. Even in the manner of our dying, let us give good witness to the, hope, to the hope your triumph brings. Destroy the works of death, O Christ. Tear down this deathly kingdom for all time, and in its place plant glad eternal cities, plant good eternal gardens that nourish and delight, producing joy, reflecting love, sustaining life. Destroy death forever, let death finally die. For you, our Christ and King, are the resurrection and the life. You, our Christ and King, are the resurrection and the life. Amen. Amen. We come now to this table that speaks of, of death, but it doesn't just speak of death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. It also is a, a, a table uh, that cries out a resurrection life. This is a table that speaks of death defeated. And so as we come this morning, uh, we remember, reflect upon uh, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also celebrate um, all that he has accomplished for us, including his resurrection from the dead. And the assurance of his resurrection gives us the assurance of, of, of our very own t- to come. And so I want to invite you to this table. You come at the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his table. He extends the invitation. If you are uh, someone this morning who is trusting and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ uh, alone for your salvation, this table has been set, set and provided uh, for you by the Lord Jesus. So come and feed on him as he is offered to you. And as we look back to the night of his betrayal and rest, we remember uh, him taking bread. And as he, as he did so, he gave thanks to his father for it and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is broken and given to you. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood will be poured out for a complete remission of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For he said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And the invitation goes out from east and west, north and south. People will come and take their places in the fe- at the feast in the kingdom of God. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Come then to the joyful feast of the Lord and be transformed. Let us proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Feed on them in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And as our practice here, we'll, we'll serve those who need to remain seated in their seats. And then as we come back to the front, we'll invite you to come forward down the center aisle. Uh, receive the bread in the cup and return to your seat. Uh, by way of the outside aisles and hold the elements till all are served and we'll uh, partake together.